And, we, you know, that was that sort of put the idea in my head. Like, oh, that would be interesting. That would be like a, a fun thing to be in the same way that like, you know, roughly as a fantasy in the same way that like when I was a teenager, I was fantasizing about being a famous metal singer. I was like, ah, I could be a famous YouTuber. That would be interesting. But I never really thought about doing it seriously. When I think about music theory on YouTube, I think of 12-tone. Why did a music theorist decide on trying to make YouTube videos? How did they end up carving their place on the niche side of YouTube? I am Alex, and this is Genesis. When uh, you meet someone new, and the question of work inevitably comes up, and people ask you what your job is, what is your go-to answer? I usually just say I'm a music theorist. It's sort of my my default is okay. to sort of like <laughs> duck the YouTube thing and just describe my subject. I'll sometimes say I work in online uh, educational media. I try not to say YouTube until I'm at least a little bit into the conversation because that, you know, there's a lot of connotations there and it's just like easier to be like, I make educational yes. videos. Oh, wh where can I find you? On YouTube has a different ring than I make YouTube videos. And then they're like, oh, what about? And it's like, uh, well, you've already... You've already reached conclusions about what I'm going to say, you know? <laughs> yes, I understand perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> now, let us start from the very beginning. Where were you born? Uh, in the Boston area. How was your childhood and how early in your life did it started? Did, did music started becoming a part of your personality or what you feel or what you do? Was that a late development or was that something that was there from the very start? So I'd say my childhood was good. Like I loving parents with a you know decent financial background so i didn't like really have that much in the way of hardship you know i mean one one of the things that just like like personally i should probably mention i am autistic and that ran into some especially uh younger earlier age did not necessarily like parents didn't have a great handle on how to deal with that school didn't have a great handle on how to deal with that led to some issues but overall i'd say like at least as good as average childhood, you know? Yes. As for music, I think listening to music was important to me from a pretty young age because it was important to... A lot of my early musical tastes come from my parents, uh, as I think most people's do. But, like, my dad had this huge CD collection, and my mom had, like, some artists she was really into that, like, she would, like... She gave me, like, a Cat Stevens CD once that I listened to for, like, so many times and like so there's sort of i got influences from both of those and i think music has always been really important to both sides of my family actually my grandmother on my mother's side uh was a dj for a while a radio dj not like modern dj but like she had a radio show and like she's always been a singer so on that side i had that and then on my father's side there's not really as many although my uncle on my father's side is a professional or he plays in a band it's uh Seriously, he's not, that's not his day job, but he plays in a band. And my grandfather was always really big on music and really it's just like, would just sing to himself a lot. So music as a passive experience has been a part of my life for a really long time. I don't think I really got into the idea of being a musician until I think around like 15 or 16. It was in high school. Actually, it was, you know, this show Metalocalypse? Yes. Yeah. So after that came out, there was a whole wave in like, like white suburban teenager culture of people being like, we're going to start a metal band. My, my friends were like, we're going to call it Death Knife, which isn't even remotely a ripoff of Death Clock. Don't worry about it. Uh, but like, <laughs> you know, then they were like, I, we had a guitarist friend, had a drummer friend, had like some people, who, a friend who played bass and were like, okay, and 
I was going to be involved because you know, I was part of the friend group, but I didn't play an instrument. So like, and Corey can sing. So that I went home and I was like, well, I guess I better learn how to sing this stuff. And I was like, I practiced singing some metal <laughs> stuff. And I was like, this is really fun. And then it turned out like no one else was really that committed to the idea. But I was like, I had already figured out that I enjoyed it. And I was like, you know what? I think I want to do this. Was that an idea that stuck with you? Or was it something that came and went as you grew older? It stuck with me for a while. Like I was throughout high school, like uh, before that, my plan had been to be a video game designer, which I roughly abandoned when I realized that that meant more than just designing cool leveling systems. Because <laughs> I, I had some really good ideas for those, but I did not feel like figuring out the rest of the game that we're going to go into. Once I sort of started moving away from game design, and moving into music as like that, that was what I wanted to do throughout high school. And it's what I went to college for. I, um, I actually applied to Berkeley twice. They were right to not accept me, <laughs> but wound up going to a different college that I, I tend not to like naming because it's a for-profit university. And I think I got a lot out of it. I think I learned a lot while I was there. I think I really grew as a musician there, but the for-profit university model is pretty deeply corrupt, and so I don't necessarily want to give them free advertising. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I did, but I went to a music school that sort of focused on rock and metal because that was a better fit for what I was doing at the time. While I was there, I sort of started to move away from the idea of being a performing musician as my primary source of income because like, I kept, I tried to put together bands. And the thing about being a singer is everyone expects you to organize the band everyone expects you to be the band leader and i suck at organizing people it's just it's not a skill i have and so like it really like i would put together a band we would practice once and then i just like i would never get around to like coordinating a second rehearsal eventually i was like realizing that i liked being on stage i liked that sort of performance aspect of it but I didn't like very much else about being a professional singer. And there was a lot of other stuff I was going to have to do. And so I was like, well, what else am I going to do? And I started looking into teaching from there. And that was sort of my plan through most of college was to be a mostly a vocal teacher and also a theory teacher. At this point, what year was this? I went to college in 2009. Uh Okay. So, yeah. So YouTube was already around as a thing. It was. I have interviewed so many people that that now I need to fall into the habit <laughs> of falling, knowing what the historical context are, because yeah. more than once I've asked people like, oh, do you consume content back then? And I get an answer like, oh, YouTube didn't exist back then. So, okay, <laughs> YouTube existed. YouTube did exist, yeah. Yeah. Was it on your radar at any level as a consumer of content? Were you aware of it? Were you following anyone? Not really. Um, or not at, not at the start anyway. I think... I was aware of YouTube. I, I think, you know, it was hard not to be at that point. And also my dad works in tech. And so I wind up being aware of this stuff fairly early on, usually somewhere around like 2000, like 2011, 2012, a friend of mine had been watching a bunch of number file videos mm. and sent me a video that they number file did with Dr. Jonathan Talent who's a philosophy professor about the philosophy of like, do numbers exist and like different ways of sort of reconciling that question. So what are we going to be talking about today is whether or not numbers exist. And um, we're going to be thinking about three different schools of thought on this. Uh, first one's Platonism, second one's nominalism, and the last one is fictionalism. I think that was the first time that YouTube really was interesting to me because it was like, I realized that I could learn. And it could let you could use it to teach things. Again, I, th I think that was like 2011, 2012. I don't know exactly when that was. And it was like I said, that, that was when I really became aware of YouTube as 
a thing that was interesting instead of just a thing that existed. Apart from number file, what channels did you end up following during these years? First thing I did again, I watched through like all of the number file videos, and I also checked out some of Brady Heron's other stuff, like um, sixty symbols, periodic videos, those sorts of things. And then I sort of started to look into the people he collaborated with, people like you know Veritasium, Minute Physics, Vihart. You know, obviously, like the old guard of educational content, as you know, is like almost all like science and math. So I wound up sort of falling into those, and then from there, like found like SciShow and then found like BrainScoop from that and slightly later wave of educational content, although BrainScoop is like has been around forever now. I don't want to take that away from them. But like, you know, it sort of fell into more of that, but really growing out from that, like the people who collaborated with Brady Heron mostly. What happened after you graduated university? At the time, I had sort of been angling to get a teaching position at the college that I had gone at. But like I had sort of been working with the like the main vocal tech teacher a lot. Like she and I were very close. And I had like a bunch of other teachers who were really interested, like who really liked working with me. And it was just like we're talking to the head of the vocal department. And we're like, hey, you should probably bring this guy in. I want them subbing for me uh, like in, in the sub pool. And I was like, that that would be super cool. That was sort of where I was putting putting all of my eggs in that basket. And then right before I graduated, they brought in a new head of the vocal department who decided that they just weren't going to hire like recent graduates anymore as a policy. And that oh, lasted right. about six months. But that was the six months that I graduated during. So I didn't get the job I was looking for. So I sort of found myself with not really a clear picture of what I wanted to do because I like I didn't have the teaching job I was looking for. I wasn't, again, really interested in being a performing musician anymore. Like I was writing songs a little bit, but like I would again, I would just like put together like a project and it would immediately fall apart because I was bad at organizing. So I, just, I found myself with a bunch of free time that I just had no real plan for what to do with. From that point, I started thinking, because back back when I was in college, to sort of jump time a little bit, uh, a friend of mine, the, the same friend who sent me the number file video, actually, we, we had sort of been talking and, and he'd just been like, you know, I, I think it would be really cool to make like educational videos, but I don't know what I would make it about. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm doing pretty good in my music theory class, so maybe I could do that. And, we, you know, that was that sort of put the idea in my head, but it, it was never really a serious idea at that point. It was sort of like, like, oh, that would be interesting. That would be like a, a fun thing to be in the same way that like, you know, roughly as a fantasy in the same way that like when I was a teenager, I was fantasizing about being a famous metal singer. I was like, ah, I could be a famous YouTuber. That would be interesting. But I never really thought about doing it seriously. And then I had all this free time and I was like, you know what? Why not? I knew from the beginning of like my serious ideas of doing a channel that I wanted to have stuff written, that, that I wanted to be that, that to be my main focus. I really liked you know, minute physics and Vihard and the way I was thinking about music and the way I still think about music is very visual. And I felt like notation was really important too. Uh, I've sort of backed off of that a little bit. It's still useful for communicating, but I just, like I'm a lot less like, oh, you need like, I need to have the sheet music there so that people can see the notes. It's like most, a lot of people can't read that. It's fine, whatever. I sort of had the head that in my head that I like, I wanted it to be visual. And I wanted to see writing. And I was like, I, I could just like go film on a whiteboard, but that looks boring. So again, I wanted to do sort of this minute physics Vihart type thing. That was really appealing to me. But I also have terrible handwriting uh, <laughs> and can't draw very well. Still can't. People tell me I can, but they're wrong. <laughs> I reached out to a friend of mine who I like I knew from college who was in the same uh, who did the bachelor program with me and 
had graduated around the same time. Like I reached out to him because he had really great handwriting. And I was like, do you want to do the animation for this? I'll do the script writing and narration. Uh, you can animate it. So I think the thing that I found that really made me realize that this was a thing I really wanted to do and that this was a thing that really mattered to me was that, again, the reason I bailed from being a performing musician was that I didn't want to organize people. It was just like so much, such a pain and I just couldn't handle it. And here I was trying to put together what eventually wound up being a team of four people before it whittled down again to just two. But at the time, there was four of us, and I was trying to coordinate all of that. And that was felt worth it to me and felt valuable and pointful in a way that I had never really felt about putting a band together. I'm, I'm surprised. Were you considering getting a job at that point? Or did you just went all in on the idea of this project as soon as you got convinced that this was a thing you wanted to do? Oh, no, sorry. I, I was looking for tutoring work as well. I sort of had been trained in vocal performance. I, I wound up eventually getting a job at a tutoring company that my friend worked at uh, that sort of that did like in-home lessons for kids. And I taught voice and piano to preteens, basically. Like that was that, that was what I was doing for work. I just I always forget about that because that was not a particularly exciting <laughs> job. I just, you know, and it didn't pay super well either. It was just like I needed to be making some money. And that was I originally had like set up to try and do stuff in like in my house, like just to sort of have have it like an in-home studio. And then it turned out that like this was the job I got where I was driving to other people's houses instead. So that studio never really got used. I still have it. I still have the setup there. I have a piano and whatnot. It's not set up to teach lessons anymore. There's just we partly use that for like storage. Like we have a electronic drum kit and whatnot in there. But it's just like, yeah, no, I, I was I was not all in on YouTube at that point. It was just that was the thing that I could do now. And I wanted to have a project that was like interesting to me. While you were working, you I imagine you uploaded your first video. Yeah. What was your mental process for choosing the name of the channel? Honestly, I just sort of felt right. I thought felt like there was a lot to it. Like the name 12 Tone came to me and I just I couldn't really think of doing anything else. At this point, there were three of us. There was me, there was Emmanuel, who was the animator. And then there was our original uh, videographer guy, Jake. So the, the three of us sort of met to talk about plans and work stuff out. And one of the things we had to decide was a name. And like 12 tone felt right to me for for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's just the alliteration. It's really fun to say. Like it just rolls off the tongue. Mm -hmm. It is. That that was important because, you know, branding. But it's also at the time, at least for me, 12 tone serialism was the most advanced music theory concept that I felt like I had a pretty decent handle on. Looking back, I feel like I have a much better handle on it now. And I also know much more complicated things. But it was sort of, to me at the time, represented the music theory deep end. And so that was part of what I was trying right. to communicate with it as well, was just like, this is not just going to be, you know, basic stuff. We're going to get into the interesting things, too. And I sort of wanted to to cover that. And it also, like, had this secondary meaning to me, where it just, like, it was really interesting to me that so much of, at least uh, Western music, at least, uh, was sort of made all these different styles of music, all these different sounds, all these different emotional frameworks that songs could create were built on these same set of 12 notes and that that all all of that complexity that, that exists in those 12 notes was really sort of a thing that I was trying to capture as well. And so that's, between those three things, it's sort of like it felt like it was a really good fit on a bunch of different levels. Right. And so I, I, I never really considered a different name. Also, like we sort of sat down when we were talking about it and we we're like, oh, we need a logo. And Emmanuel just sort of drew 
the the logo we still use to this day with sort of the treble clef and the bass clef and then turning the bass clef into the two and it, it's it's a really nice logo i really like it and it was just like yeah that's a perfect fit there's a lot of reasons that i like the name but there was never really another name in contention i don't think that's fantastic so what was the story of how the channel evolved after you uploaded your first video let me start from before we uploaded the first video because that sure there's about a year there okay to start it was again me emmanuel and jake and Emmanuel was going to do the audio editing too, because I had no, didn't have an engineering background, audio engineer background. And so he was going to do that. And then he was just like, he was too busy because I think he still had some school stuff left that he was trying to focus on. And so we brought in another friend of ours, uh, Milo, who also was in the bachelor program with us. Like we, we filmed some stuff and never really got much beyond that. At that point, we were sort of like trying to get everything together. Like, because part of part of my plan before we started was like, I'm going to have 10 videos ready to go, right? I'm going to make 10 videos in advance and try and keep like 10 videos ahead. Or maybe it was five. I don't know. But I wanted to have like a bunch of like videos ready to go to publish that I had already mm-hmm. edited and try and keep like a month or two in advance producing. And I was like, that that fell off the fell off the wayside as soon as we started publishing. But that was my plan at the time. It made so much <laughs> sense before I tried to do it. Well, okay, so here's here's what we can do just to get started is to take the first couple of videos and get another friend, Michael, to edit those for us. Then we can at least start publishing and get the ball rolling. And then we can sort of pick up and maybe have Michael do the editing. And then Andrew can do the filming because that was the part he really enjoyed and wanted to focus on. And so I went over to to Michael's to sort of work with him on that. And I wound up just like doing the editing myself because it was just like, you know, he, he was <laughs> he was good at it. But it's just like the thing about the sort of editing that I wanted is it's very specific. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you see my like a lot of the skills that I use are not skills that like people who are good at video editing use very much. Yeah. Uh, and so like it didn't seem like him doing it instead of me was actually helping all that much. And so I just like, do you mind if I cut in? And I just did the stuff myself and got it looking the way I wanted. And so that's how I figured out that I knew how to use Premiere. And he, you know, he he helped me with that. He walked me through some of the stuff, gave me some tips to get me started. But then I was just like, you know what? I can just do the video editing myself. And so I wound up taking over that. And then pretty soon after, Andrew just got like so busy that he had to leave and had to just be done. Which, you know, fair enough. Again, I can't really, can't fault him for it. But anyway, the the reason we wound up publishing in the first place was because I had very optimistically bought tickets for VidCon. Wow. You hadn't even published a video. Yeah. And I had, well, you've met the people who buy creator passes at VidCon, Alex. Come on. (laughs) Uh, Still, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty optimistic still. Yeah. But it was the thing. It's like, I I got. (laughs) Point taken. I I had, I had this, like, I was going to VidCon and I was like, I had this creator badge. and I was like, if I don't have videos up, people are going to think I'm a fraud, which again, You've mm. met the people who have creator badges. That was not like, like I didn't realize how many people were going to show up, tell me they were going to make a channel at some point and then never do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so many people are like, I have this great idea for a channel. And it's like, great, cool. When's it going to come? Uh, what What have you done? And it's like, oh, I'm going to publish soon. And it's just like, cool, let me know when you do. And then they don't. They never, never do. happens. Uh, yeah. that, that's not everyone, to be fair. But, uh, but I was just mm-hmm. like, I needed to have a video out. And so I made sure that I had at least published one video by the time I went to VidCon so that my creator badge wasn't a lie. <laughs> and so then that that's honestly, I don't know how long it would have taken us to publish if I didn't have that VidCon thing hanging over me. And then I knew I wanted to publish weekly. And so I've like made myself hit every Friday after that. Okay. Wow. <laughs> well, any, any, 
Any motivation is good, right? Yeah, um, it, it got me to publish. <laughs> yes, it got you to publish. So, what 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 happened next? How was yeah? How was it both the res the initial reception and the growth? What was the first couple of months of actual videos out there? So that was very little happened in those first couple months. I was publishing weekly. I, most of my views early on were from friends on Facebook and, you know, they were getting something like 50 views to start and that dwindled down to around 20. So, yeah, it, it wasn't really doing much. Again, Andrew, Andrew bailed full. Uh, I say bailed, went to go do the real job that was paying him. <laughs> I'm not mad at him for it. I want to be clear, but sort of had, had to bow out. And then after a bit, Milo, who had been doing the audio editing, was moving to New York and so he he had to leave. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to learn to audio edit because Emmanuel still didn't have the time. And I didn't really have any other connections with people who would do that for me for free. And so I was just like, all right, cool. Let's let's try doing this myself. And it turned out to be not that hard to do it well enough. I want to be clear. If you go back to those early videos, especially, I was not a great audio editor. I'm still only okay. But like, <laughs> it's just, like if you go back, it was passable. I could cut audio together, and that was all I really needed. Uh, so I, I could do that, and that sort of, as I was doing these, taking over these other things, I wound up finding it honestly like kind of liberating and kind of freeing because that way I could just I could work whenever I wanted to. I didn't have to work around someone else's schedule. I didn't have to add scheduling. And like when I was recording with Milo, I would go over to his apartment, and that meant that was like a half hour drive. So I was adding like an hour to the like to the recording time just driving to his place and back and so because it's la nothing is close from there like I, I had taken over pretty much everything except the animation that was still emmanuel and then eventually emmanuel was also also moved he, he was down to keep doing the thing except that he like he had to move he was just like he was going back home and the decision was like either stop the channel or just decide that i'm good enough at drawing and i was like you know what i, I want to keep this going so i'm going to do that and around, yeah, this was around like six months in. If you go back, there's actually like a video that we did just announcing the change to, again, like the 20 people that were watching. But just just so they weren't confused, I wanted to make sure that they knew why the handwriting started to suck all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so like we, we did that. It was over Christmas, uh, or like uh, while I was going home for Christmas. I was giving myself, at the time, I was only giving myself two weeks off a year. And that was the, the Christmas, uh, two, two weeks for Christmas and New Year's. I was publishing for Thanksgiving, uh, in Thanksgiving week even. I, I was going home. I wanted to see my family and I didn't want to make two videos in advance and publish them when no one was watching anyway. So I was just like, I'm just going to give myself two weeks. It's fine. We decided, Emmanuel, was, he was going to be like moving in like February, I think. But we were just like, you know what? The, the end of the year is a nice clean cut. We'll just do it then. And so on the flight home, I brought a Sharpie and a bunch of paper and just practiced drawing elephants and treble clefts <laughs> just like over and over just to like try and figure out because like one of, one of the really nice things about the elephants that we use is like there's they have a really high cuteness to difficulty ratio mm -hmm. they're not that hard to draw there's it's like a couple pen strokes and they look great and that they're, they're Emmanuel's design uh but i sort of tried to learn to mimic what he was doing and sort of developed it over time to do it my own way uh but they sort of based on his design I just like I needed to make sure that I could do it. And again, also treble clefts, anyone who's ever tried to draw a treble clef, they're really hard. <laughs> they're like just shockingly difficult to draw. Bass clefts are super easy. 
as long as you remember where the dots go. But like treble clefs are weird. So like I just like spent the flight home just like or at least part of the flight home. It was like a six hour flight. I didn't spend the entire time. But like I spent at least an hour or two on that flight just like drawing like these cartoon elephants just to make sure that when I got back, I could. It actually wasn't that much longer until we started to get some attention, like a little bit of attention. This was about six months in. Oh, I should probably mention, uh, just to give people credit who deserve it, uh, when Emmanuel left, I had to have someone take over some of the stuff that I was doing during filming. Like everything else I could sort of sequence and just do one thing at a time, but I had to sort of have, have someone watching the camera, for instance. And at the time, we uh, were also, I was reading the directions to Emmanuel, and then he was drawing each thing that I told him to draw, and I needed someone to read those to me. And so I roped in my sibling, who lived with me at the time and still does, and just asked them if they would mind helping out with that and helping. And at the time, they they weren't super into it, but they were like, yeah, sure, I had nothing better to do. So we would just like do that. And over time, they've gotten a lot more involved. And I think you, you've met Jareth. But uh, but yeah, yes, a big, pr- a pretty big portion of the channel at this point. But this sort of started out with this thing where it's just like, I really need someone to help me make this work. Would you mind doing this for me? And it was just like doing me a favor. Yeah, I would say again, sort of this would be like January of I think 2016. Someone found our videos and posted one of them on r slash music theory, ah. which is a, is a big music, the uh, the biggest music theory subreddit, which is not like a huge, like not a lot of competition for that title, but, you know, but pr- pretty big music theory subreddit. And so we sort of shot up from around like, you know, 80, 90 subscribers to somewhere like a thousand, you know, a, a lot of those people didn't stick around, but some of them did. And some of them were interested in what we were doing. Uh, and some of them suggested new things that sort of got me going down a couple other rabbit holes and learning about some really cool music theory stuff I hadn't encountered before. And then, of course, there was like the grumpy old curmudgeons that were just complaining about the fact that my work wasn't a syllabus, which I'm... <laughs> oh, I cut that mix. Yeah. You gotta love them. Yeah, that was sort of roughly where I think our first little spark of attention came from. Obviously, it wasn't wasn't huge. Even at the time, I wasn't like, oh, dang, this is this is my big break. But it was it was nice to sort of see like, oh, some some recognition, especially from people who did who liked music theory and wanted to serve. It was just like, oh, these people like what I do, what I'm doing. And maybe I'm doing something worth doing, you know, after that initial spark, I imagine like, was it a a linear growth after that? Or did any other events happen during the way? that just increased the rate of growth after that point i think it sort of was growing a little bit but it wasn't really growing much uh sort of what i would see was i would look at my analytics and there'd be a big spike anytime anyone posted my videos on r slash music theory basically and that was got to the point where like anytime i saw like new traffic and i was like oh that this is performing unexpectedly well or oh there's a bunch of new subs today the first thing I would do is just go check r slash music theory to see if someone had posted my work, and almost always they had. The next thing that really changed was the next year's VidCon, actually. A lot of my early stuff revolves around VidCon, but I went, and they, they used to have this thing called the Mentor Program, uh, where if you had mm-hmm. a creator badge, you could sign up for like a 15-minute uh, session with sort of a, a set of creators, uh, like big name creators, and they would like sit down and talk you talk to you about what you're doing and give you advice. Yeah, I have been a mentor in one of those sessions. Nice. In fact. Very cool. 
I, I signed up. I signed up for that, and I, I wound up with um, Henry from Minute Physics. Right. Perfect. Wow. Perfect yeah. No. Very. Fit. It was a perfect fit. Uh, and we wound up being his last one, and so we wound up going over by like five ten minutes because he was just like really interested in what we were doing. And it started with him just sort of like I played him a because it starts with you know you just play them a bit of the video because they're they're not gonna like go look up your channel beforehand. You just show them a bit and they react. But like it started, I showed him a bit of it, and he sort of paused and was like, "Okay, who's your target audience?" And I was like, "Well, most of my viewers are you know music theorists and people who've studied." It's like, "No, not not who's your audience? Who's your target audience?" I was just like, well, I, I sort of want to reach people who may not really appreciate music theory, but like would think it was interesting if someone showed them and he was like, okay, you're not doing that right now. He, he was nicer about it, but this was basically the message was just like, this is not, you're making basically music theory tutorials for people in music theory class. And that's fine if that's what you want to make, but it doesn't sound like it's what you want to make. So maybe think about how you want to tell that, how you want to do that. And I think he really pushed me in a couple directions that wound up being super, super valuable and really changing the direction of my work. Again, it was, it's a thing where sometimes you don't really see the pattern until someone points it out to you. And I, I wasn't thinking of my work as like uh, study guides, but that's roughly what I was making. And if I look back, it's, yeah, it's study guides for undergrad theory. And that's fine. There's, there's value to that. But it wasn't really my goal. And I wasn't accomplishing my goal. I was just sort of repeating the things that had been taught to me, the way they were taught to me. And that wasn't really grabbing people's attention the way I wanted it to. And, and again, like I talked with Henry and he was, he was like giving me a lot of, a lot of great feedback and also like was pointing out like one of the things I remember that I'm still very proud of to this day uh, is that like one of the things I, I realized very early on when I was editing was that I wanted to line up the moment where my hands started to pull away on the page with an accented syllable because it just looks better. Like you don't notice it consciously, but it looks so much better. And like I mentioned that in like, like Henry was like, oh, that's, that's really cool that you figured that out on your own. Uh, so I've still, again, it's really. Validating. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's nice to be, have that validation that maybe I like have some instinct for what I'm doing, but still, yeah. But again, and, and he was just like, at the end, it was like, I'm, I'm really excited to see what you're doing. Like, feel free to send me an email and like we can keep talking and like a couple a couple weeks later i did send him that email uh and he sent a thing back with some other stuff and one of the things he mentioned was like you you really need to think about your thumbnails because that's one of those things i think you know every beginning yeah. youtuber doesn't want to i think everyone mm -hmm. sort of comes into it with this idea of like you know what like i'm just gonna make such good videos i want to focus on that like the thumbnail and title thing that's that's stupid i don't like it and so I'm not going to do it. The number one biggest newbie YouTuber mistake, always. We had some back and forth. He gave me some tips on like a decent format. And it's basically still the format for my thumbnails that I use today. You know, I play around with it a little bit, but not much. Like if it's, I mean, it's evolved, but like the basic structure is still the thing that Henry recommended to me back in 2016. That was a big help. And, and like also he like pledged, supported my Patreon at that point and like has continued to for like, I cannot say enough nice things about Henry Rice. That dude's very cool. But it says a lot about the potential of FedCon that you managed to not only enter in contact with one of your main influences, but actually get a lot of firsthand advice that you have implemented successfully. Yeah. For all the people that we uh, laugh, laugh about a little bit that buy a creator pass and don't even start a channel, there's always like one person that is just like the perfect person to go to VetCon. And for those years, that was you. Oh, absolutely. I like... I've gotten to the point where I don't really like, 
I, I wasn't even going to buy a pass this last year. Uh, I had actually been invited to speak the last couple of years. I wasn't this most recent one. And I was just like, I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to go down and hang out in the area and just chill with friends. It's not worth my time because I wasn't going to any of the panels at that point. But like, it was definitely for where I was at. I think I got like VidCon was great. And I also think it's changed. I don't think they do the mentors program anymore. Or no, no they do the like a round table version of it or they did. Uh, but it wasn't yeah. like one on one anymore which is unfortunate because that was really cool. But um, but obviously that that's a mashing demand thing. They can't just like, they have to deal with the amount of people who want the thing and make it accessible to everyone. And I get that. I can't be mad at that. But no, Vid- VidCon was really important to like getting me off the ground there. And I think, and Henry again. Actually, one of the things that I did honestly before I even started the channel, um, when I was sort of think- trying to figure out how to do it, was I sent an email to about... 10 creators that I really looked up to and whose whose work I loved and I was just like basically just asking for advice and I I tried to include like a couple specific questions to make sure that like cuz cuz you know you don't want to just like send a super nebulous question it was like how do I do YouTube cuz like that's that's a really hard question to answer so I tried to include like I forget what the question is that was at this point but it's just like a specific question and then like a follow up of like if you have any other advice and like four different people got back to me of of the 10. Uh, I was uh, Henry again, uh, Emily Grassley from The Brain Scoop, Tom Scott, and then uh, Mithuna from Looking Glass Universe. Forever grateful to all four of them. So that was super cool. Uh, they really did not have to take the time to do that. And I try and pay it, for- pay it forward too. Like whenever, whenever I get questions, even if, you know, I, I can look at it and be like, most people are going to bail on this, like their project pretty quickly. That's just the reality of it. But just in case the person who emails me is someone is that one person who isn't going to and is going to power through and is going to make something great, I don't want to have like not been helpful to them if I could have made that journey a little bit better. So I, I try and keep that in mind now that I have somewhat of an audience. Like I'm still not at like, you know, the level of like minute physics or anything, but I try and pay that forward where I can. Going back to the history thing, I think the next thing that happened was after I had started doing the thumbnails, I think the next major change, again, I, I was getting posted to r slash music theory occasionally and seeing bumps from that. But the next major thing that happened uh, was actually in the fall of that year, Leonard Cohen passed away. Hmm. My dad uh, reached out and was like, hey, you know, you talk about music theory, you you talk about these ideas. And Leonard Cohen, who like had this song, Hallelujah, uh, I don't know if you've heard of it. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall. The first verse contains all of these sort of descriptions of music theory concepts for what he's playing. You know, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. And he's like, what do those mean? What is what is he talking about in that song? That was like, oh, you know what? That would actually be a really interesting video. And I was just like, did an analysis of uh, Hallelujah. And while I was working on that, at the time, Jer was doing script supervision for me. So I would write scripts and then run them past them uh, just to see, you know, if they were something that a non-expert could understand. That one in uh, particular, they were like, this is really cool. I really like this this format. Like, I think this is really a a great way to take these ideas and make them a little more accessible and a little more understandable. So I can actually sort of relate the concepts that you're describing to music that I know and care about. That was sort of where I realized that, you know, doing the song analysis series 
might be a good idea. And that seems really silly now, looking back. That should have been obvious, but it wasn't. So I was just like, like decided, uh, I think a couple months later, that I was going to start doing one of those every month. I started with Stairway to Heaven and then Sweet Child of Mine and like a bunch of stuff. I was taking suggestions from patrons at the time. That was my model was I just sort of put out like the people could send me requests and I'd make a list and I'd do whatever off that list I wanted to do. But like that was sort of where I was getting requests from, which was a system that I could game a little bit because my parents were both patrons. And so if there was a song I wanted to do, I could just <laughs> ask one of them to request it. Uh, Classic. I didn't wind up abusing that power too much, but uh, I, I did wind up like, I think that was how Adam Neely found my work. I believe he probably saw the Stairway to Heaven video as my current guess because he sort of supported me on Patreon relatively soon after that went out. So I'm guessing someone either that stumbled across his recommendations or whatever. And then he shouted me out in a video and there I sort of jumped from a couple thousand to around 10,000 subscribers. Ooh, I don't nice. remember views, uh, but that, that was pretty rapid growth at the time. I think I settled around like 12,000. Uh, so that, that sort of that was a nice jump. Then the real sort of moment that I was like, oh, dang, this is a real thing actually came again after a musician that I really respected passed away, the, uh, Chris Cornell. Um, he he died and I was just like, he had been really important to like a lot of my friends in music school and also like, like, like me. And like, it was a, in a lot of my social circles, this was a really big deal and I wanted to commemorate it. And so I did a video analyzing black hole sun. Honestly, like looking back, my recollection is that I had actually decided to do black hole sun before he passed away. I had picked it the month before and then the news broke and I was like, well, I mean, I don't, I don't believe in like, like signs or whatever, but it was just like, all right, well, I, I feel like I really have to do this now. By coincidence, my video came out the same day, I believe it was Regina Spector released a cover tribute of Black Hole Sun. YouTube decided to put my video on the recommendations tab next to that video. So people who watched her video were just like, oh, hey, here, there's another video about Black Hole Sun that really started to take off. And then people watched those videos. They, then they would go back and watch my other song analysis videos. And so those started to blow up too. You know, so there's like after boom type thing where like suddenly YouTube was like, okay, well, people are chilling on this Black Hole Sun video, but wow, they're really into this Blackbird video now. And they're really into this Stairway to Heaven video. And, you know, all of these like older song analysis videos started getting a lot of attention too at the same time. And we actually wound up on the trending tab creator on the rise for a little bit. Ah, yeah, I remember this. Which I found out because Alex Nickel uh, posted about it on Twitter. Because he opened the trending tab, saw me. Like, he, he and I were friends already at the time. We knew each other through We Create EDU. So he was like, oh, hey, check it out. And so that, that's how I found out that this happened. Because I don't check the trending tab. Honestly, like, it's one of those things that, like, you know, we have talked about in, like, creator circles. Where, like, the creator on the rise especially is kind of a double-edged sword. Because you get a bunch of subscribers who aren't actually all that interested. And mm -hmm. so, like, they, they, the hype continued for a little while. Like, I think my most successful song analysis video ever... Uh, came out sort of near the end of that sort of that period was I did comfortably numb that one blew up and then but like eventually that sort of died out that sort of momentum 
it didn't die out. It sort of settled, you know? Yes. It settled down to a new comfortable level that was much higher. And this was the point where I was starting to see myself sort of moving towards, you know, like real professional YouTuber numbers. And that was the time where I was like, you know what? If I don't go for this, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. I have to try this. And so I quit my tutoring job. I didn't have a lot of students left at that point. I'd sort of like been dialing that back already. But there was like a couple students that I really liked that I kept working with. And I was just like, this is even this is just getting too much. I really have to focus on what I'm doing. And so I had to be like, look, I I have to be done. I'm sorry. And it sucked because like, again, like it's, it's like a couple of really, really great students that I like <laughs> really loved working with. For most people leaving their job to the YouTube, it's like a moment of triumph. Yeah. But it, but it, you're, you're still it still seems like it was a little bit bittersweet for you. It was like, yeah, it's both. It's just like. Looking like honestly, there's just there's one student that I really wish I could have kept working with, but I really just like even doing that, especially because I had to like drive to his place to do the lesson. And so this was like two and a half hours, and I was getting paid just for the half hour that I was actually at his place. And like I wasn't even getting paid that much for that. And it was just like this is I just can't justify this anymore. But I, I think it was it was the right decision. And like the parents were super cool too. And they they was as soon as I explained that, I was just like, I have this thing that's really my like artistic career is really taking off. And they were like, yeah, you got to go for it. That's we totally get it. So shout out to them. Yeah. Looking back, that was that was a tough decision. And I wound up pushing back the time where I stopped teaching him a couple times because we were just like, you know, well, well can we get like to the end of August or, can, or not August? It was it was later in the year than that. But you know what I mean? Can we get to the end of this month? And it was just like, all right, mm-hmm. cool, let's do that. And but eventually I was just like, all right, I, I just have to be done. But yeah, that was that was I think where I really decided like I wasn't making professional YouTuber money yet, but I figured I was on a path where maybe I could. And that that was I think the real sort of turning point for me professionally where I was like this is not just a dream, this is a thing that I could make happen if I really try. To to start closing down, I got a couple of questions. The first is how do you feel your life has changed ever since you started having an established audience? Oh man. Um well, one of the nice things is because I don't show my face on camera, it's less weird in public. I mean, you know, it's any any given public space isn't necessarily likely to have people who watch my videos anyway. I don't have that many views, but like it's just like I, I can sort of be incognito and I don't have to really worry about it. But it's, I think the main thing that's really changed is the way that I it's a hard question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess the way that I think about creation and the way that I think about sort of because I think at the time I really like I wanted to do this full time and I I wanted to sort of just be like making enough money to that I never wanted to get rich off YouTube that was never my goal but like I think that over time I've gotten like more and more suspicious of the way the creator ecosystem runs if that makes sense Yes. Part of that is broader issues than the creator ecosystem. You know, it's not just that like it's a fundamental problem of the way we fund the arts. And that's that's a whole topic that mm-hmm. we almost certainly don't have time to get into right now. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a two hour conversation on its own. I'll save you that one. But it's just like getting a better understanding of sort of how sponsorships work has really changed the way that I, and and I still do sponsorships. I don't think that they're, you know, inherently bad or anything. It's given me a deep, better appreciation for why people do them. And so I cannot like not necessarily be as judgmental. Like I think the looking back, you know, there's a lot of people who sort of view 
it's just have, have the idea that this stuff should be free and therefore you shouldn't be advertising to them in the thing. And I think that that's short-sighted. Mm-hmm. But I, I so I have have a better understanding of why people do sponsors, but also like a more specific idea of how to do that ethically. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's really something that I didn't really think about until I got to the point where I was doing it regularly. The weirdest thing I think is just the having an audience in academia, if that makes sense. Like yes. just having music theorists who love my work and are excited to meet me. And like I've got invited to like some conferences and whatnot, and a bunch of people were like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I'm talking to twelve tone." It's like, calm down. Like I'm not that big a deal. <laughs> like I draw elephants on my kitchen table. You're the ones doing the cool research that I based my career off of. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, another feeling. Like I've done like videos on like people's like work, and so sometimes I've done those as collaborations. And like, there's always you know like. Like people are like, oh my god, this is so cool that this happened, and it's just like, I, I'm like super excited that people are even like willing to give me the time of day and willing to like talk to me about the really cool stuff they're doing, and like sometimes I like, like even like read the scripts that I wrote and like check them for you know like accuracy and make sure that I'm doing their thing justice, and they're like super excited that I'm doing this thing, and it's like I'm not that big a deal. You're the one doing the cool stuff. I'm just talking about it. I think in music theory, especially that there's. I think this varies by academic discipline, but there, there's, I think, a really, there's a desire to be more public facing in music theory these days. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a lot more respect for the sort of work that I do and the sort of work that other public music theorists do. And that sort of, that relationship has been really rewarding. And just being in a position where I get to know and get to like be friends with and talk to and just pick the brains of really, really smart music people, like whenever I want, basically has been really amazing. So final question. Sure. What if there's someone who is finding inspiration in your work, the same way you found inspiration from metaphysics, for example? Yeah. What will be your key advice to them after having gone through the process yourself? The biggest piece of advice that I try to give people, like anyone who asks about doing YouTube or whatever, is just find a reason to do it that isn't reflected in the numbers YouTube shows you. It's really good advice. Find find like something that motivates you besides views, besides subs, besides watch time. Find something that makes you want to make this thing exist for its own sake. Cause I think like I look back and I was making videos again for like six months for an audience in the double digits. And that's not to say that that's that those people weren't relevant or valuable or that they didn't matter but it would have been very easy to get discouraged and i I, like i think at times i was discouraged by just looking and like wanting to be getting more eyeballs on my work but i also like this was a thing that was really important to me and i wanted it to exist and i was willing to just scream it into the void if no one was watching and i want to sort of take a second to acknowledge that there's a lot of privilege in that right like having the financial freedom to be able to do that and having like the savings to not really have that and having a job that like didn't take too much of my time like there's certainly it could have been a lot harder for me to do that. And I don't want to pretend that like all you need is determination. Like there's a lot more to it than that. But if you can't find a reason to do it, that isn't numbers, you're probably not going to get those numbers fast enough for it to be worthwhile. Like you might, you know, like if you look at like a friend of ours, like uh tier zoo blew up on like his first or second video, mm-hmm. but like most people that doesn't happen. But to. that's, that's not the norm. That's, that's yeah. not the normal experience. And so just, the more you can motivate yourself 
by the value of the that the work has intrinsically or by the value that the work has to you as opposed to the the value that the eyeballs that it gains has i think the more likely you are to keep at it for long enough to get those eyeballs get that attention get those subscribers and views and whatnot because that takes a really long time and there's no way to know how long much time it takes like i have friends who've been doing this for years and still are making videos for like a couple hundred people and they're they're making it because they love the videos and that's great and i have nothing but respect for that that's like that can happen even if your videos are good it's not like it's not you don't get to like skip the line just because you make really good videos. A lot of people make really good videos. Way too many people make really good videos. That's that's the price of admission for success. That's not that's the price of admission to buy a ticket for the lottery. It's not like yeah, exactly. a guarantee of anything. I get nervous like the advice was like if you could see yourself doing anything else for a living, do that instead. I think that's that's bad advice. <laughs> yeah. Like, I I don't think it's a useful way to frame it. We live in a society where the arts and creative endeavors are wildly underfunded across the board. So if that's not your passion, if that's not a thing you really want to do, if that's not a thing that you want to make happen for its own sake, it's probably not a career that you want to get into. It's probably not a career that's going to be particularly rewarding for you because it's not going to pay you for a long time. And yeah, I've been circling around the same point for a long time, but just find find stuff that motivates you intrinsically rather than relying on YouTube analytics because YouTube analytics suck. I hate them. They're so bad. When I when I inevitably record my own episode of my story, I'm going to have to spend, I don't know, like 20 minutes just talking about how important analytics are. But that's that's another two hour conversation for yet another day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much uh, for this. This has been your your you have a great story to tell. And there's there's. There's a lot of here that a lot of people, I think, are going to get value of. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me.